Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. first week of our February theme, marriage, love, law, and lineage. February is, of course, the month of Valentine's Day, a busy time for florists, greeting card companies, candy companies, and whoever makes all those giant stuffed animals. When some people step up their romance, some keep it simple. Some raise the stakes, and sometimes it's even a breaking point for a relationship. Now, I could have talked about the history of all that, but you know, I really just didn't want to. Instead, we're going to do something that involves love, except when it doesn't. Love is just one reason for marriage, and for a long time it wasn't the primary reason as we think of it today. In the theme's title, I mentioned law and lineage alongside love. They're fairly self-explanatory and not the only reasons people have gotten married throughout history. What we're going to see this month is how different societies have handled marriage. As always, will begin in the ancient world, starting with the oldest examples of marriage before moving into Greece and Rome. And of course, the history of marriage is a worldwide history that I couldn't possibly cover in one month. So you could almost think of this like a part one, with a part two to come at a later, yet undetermined time. Hopefully something to look forward to. Now for today's topic, the ancient world. A variety of cultures have their own myths or legends regarding the origin of marriage. For the earliest documentation of marriage ceremonies, we look to ancient Mesopotamia around 2350 BCE, long before love or religion became defining aspects of the institution. And it's very likely that the history of marriage predates even these ancient records. During this time, marriage was a contract. If love occurred, it was only a happy coincidence. It wasn't a reason or even a factor in creating or maintaining this union. It was considered a legal contract and one in which the prospective bride was not involved. The deal was made between the future husband and the father-in-law. Terms were drawn up in which the bride's father put forth a price for his daughter's hand. If the husband agreed, this price was actually paid to the bride. Once they came to an agreement, a ceremony would take place. Effectively, this was the bride being delivered to her husband. Again, she's really not getting a say here. And while witnesses were present, the husband would place a veil over his bride and declare, she is my wife. So she's been handed to him and he is publicly claiming her as his own. A part of the ceremony involved the husband pouring an unknown amount of perfume on the bride's head. Now, I'm not sure what exactly the significance was, but for her sake, I really hope it was a small amount. He would also bring her presents that were in addition to the price he'd paid for. The next step was living arrangements. The bride did have a choice, or at least some say in the choice, of where she stayed on her wedding night. She could go with her husband to his home or stay with her father. If she stayed with her father, the husband gave her an amount that apparently went toward maintaining the house in some way. 
if she went with her husband, she brought with her a dowry. So there's a lot of money and gifts going around in this arrangement. Which makes some sense because this arrangement was very important. The primary purpose was to conceive children and, by binding the man and the woman together, ensure that any children were indeed his legitimate offspring. Then, as today, the legitimacy of children was a concern for men. Though this union was clearly believed to be strong enough to guarantee that he was the father and not some other man. And in this marriage, he was also the full authority over the bride and any children they had together. Now, with that primary purpose in mind, there's another side to this arrangement. If the bride did not bear children, the husband could actually get a refund of the amount paid to marry her, either when she died or sometime before. And if he died, she was expected to marry one of his brothers or, if he had none, then a close male relative. She was actually expected to remain a part of his family. That said, the husband was under no such obligation. If he didn't want to marry her sister or female relative, he didn't. Don't you love that double standard? And I'm not even done. In addition to all of that, the husband could take on a concubine if he so desired. He couldn't take on another wife unless his first wife proved incapable of bearing his children, in which case he was allowed to divorce her and take another. Never two wives at the same time, though. But he could take on one single concubine. When in public with the wife, she would wear a veil. She was just below the wife in terms of position, and so was expected to respect her. When a child was born, presumably by the wife, he or she became almost like property to the father. He would, in some legal documents, be listed as owner or master, not father. So in this marriage, not only did the husband have authority over the bride, but over the children as well. So this was definitely not a marriage born of love. It was all about bearing children and all controlled by the men involved. And that's our earliest record of marriage over 4,000 years ago. A far cry from ideas like soulmates and marrying for love, and absolutely no sense of equal standing between husband and wife. So having looked at that, let's move on to Greece, which we've touched on before, back in our festive food theme. Talking about marriage in classical Greece requires a look at the goddess Hera as well. Both sister and wife of Zeus, Hera had several things associated with her. One of the most significant was marriage, which pairs well with the fact that her jealous rages could frighten even the fearless Zeus, and he faced many such rages given that he so enjoyed leaving her side to have sex with both mortals and other divinities. Seriously, the guy had as many as 107 kids, maybe even more, as some of those attributed to him are entire groups. It's important to point out, though, that these myths are not always consistent, so the number could be higher or lower. However, the number is definitely way up there. There's been much analysis done on Zeus's uh, indiscretions, shall we say. Going from the count above, 56 were with other divinities. The rest were mortal. How many of that total were Hera's? Maybe 
if that. Depending on the accuracy of various myths, the number could be as low as 4 or as high as 10. Again, there's a whole lot going on with the mythology, so exact numbers are hard to determine since it requires analysis on each myth and deciding which ones are canon, if you will. But you get the idea. Zeus didn't, for lack of a better phrase, know how to keep it in his toga. Oh, and one more thing about our serial cheater. He tricked Hera into marriage. That's right. He responded to her rejection of his marriage proposal by taking the form of a cuckoo bird. Hera had great empathy for animals, so in this form he pretended to be in distress during a thunderstorm, which was of his own creation. When Hera noticed this bird outside her window, she couldn't help but take it in and warm it against her breast. Then Zeus did as Zeus and other gods tended to do. He transformed into himself and raped her. In her shame of allowing him to do this, Hera agreed to marry him. Yeah, he went through all of that to get her to marry him, and he just couldn't stop having sex with other women. Possibly at least one young male, too. This is what the goddess of marriage had to put up with. Yet, no matter how many times it happened, no matter how many rages she went into against Zeus, his mistresses, or his offspring with those mistresses, they remained together for eternity. Now you know a bit about Hera's own marriage. Did the Greeks see the goddess of marriage's marriage as an example for their own marriages? Let's take a look and see. Classical Greek marriages had some definite similarities to those we saw earlier in ancient Mesopotamia. For one, love wasn't a factor. If you found love in your marriage, that was a perk. But it didn't matter in forming a union. And again, the woman had effectively no say in the matter. In the earlier years, this arrangement was a private one between the two men negotiating the union. One was, of course, the man who was to be the husband. The other was the woman's kyrios. Translated, that means lord or controller. Effectively, the male relative in her life who had the authority over her. Typically, this would be her father, in the event that he had died, her nearest male relative held the position. And this arrangement was, as in Mesopotamia, for the bearing of children. Which is why it eventually became more than just a private arrangement. Procreation of children impacted life beyond the individual household. Membership in the community was one way. Another was the inheritance of property. These were matters that impacted the city, and therefore the city became involved with laws intended to define legitimacy. There's that word again, legitimacy. It's going to keep showing up. Even today we're concerned with it. We'll get to that in a few weeks. So the cities came to define legitimacy of a marriage and therefore the legitimacy of heirs. Once more, we look to Athens. Here, certain steps had to be followed for a marriage to be considered legal. The first involved the Kyrios. He had to give an official statement called an engie. Think of this as a betrothal. The Kyrios, whether her father or a male relative, formally granted the woman to the husband. Again, there was no legal requirement for her consent. She was told to marry this man, and that's what she did. Marriage within the family was not allowed. 
mostly. She couldn't marry any direct ancestors or descendants, so no marrying her father or her own son. Likewise, she could not marry a brother with the same mother and father, or a half-brother with the same mother. However, marriage to a half-brother on her father's side was actually allowed. An uncle or cousin was allowed as well. Now, I'm not sure how often this occurred, but it was allowed under Athenian marriage law. In 451 BCE, it became illegal for an Athenian to marry anyone who wasn't Athenian under the laws of citizenship. This was instituted by Pericles as part of his citizenship law. As in Mesopotamia, a man could take on a concubine, but not a second wife. He could also have children with this concubine, but they were not considered legitimate. Only those born to his lawful wife were legitimate. The term used for the illegitimate children is nothoi, which translates to bastard. Being born to unmarried parents put these children at a disadvantage, as you might imagine. One that was worse if one of the parents wasn't a citizen. The latter even had a special term, metroxenos, for when the mother was the foreigner. And more often than not, this was the case for this version of mixed parentage. Likely, these would be more stigmatized for their perceived impurity, especially as more emphasis was placed on being a pure-blooded Athenian. That isn't to say everything was great for the pure-blooded Nothoi. They faced disadvantages as well, including those relating to the inheritance and citizenship afforded to legitimate children. It's worth noting, however, that some very well-known mythical heroes were Nothoi, Heracles, for example, fathered by Zeus when he had sex with the mortal woman Alcmene, wife of Amphitryon. Perseus, too, was a Nothoi, born when Zeus had impregnated the mortal woman Danae. Really, there's a whole lot of Nothoi in mythology, though it would seem they weren't held to the same standards of purity and legitimacy that the Athenians held themselves to. That's why legal marriage was so important. Legitimate children were the concerns of the family and of the city. Another note on the marriages here is also similar to Mesopotamia. There was often some form of a gift exchange as part of the arrangement. In the time of Homer, there may have been a gift from the husband to the father. In classical Athens, the gift was usually in the form of a dowry from the father to the husband in order to support the wife and future children. This wasn't a requirement, though. Gifts were only given if the parties involved wanted to do so, although there might have been some societal pressure in order to make it happen. As far as divorce goes, it seems to have been a fairly simple matter. The husband could send the wife back to her father, thus dissolving the marriage. One reason would likely have been if she were unable to bear children, after which he would be free to marry again, while the woman's father would be free to marry her off again. It doesn't appear that any particular requirements, legal or otherwise, had to be met in order for a divorce to happen. The husband simply ended it and everyone moved on. So that's what was going on in Athens in ancient Greece. As is often the case, laws and procedures weren't the same in every polis, but Athens is where we find many of our surviving sources. 
Now we're going to head on over to Rome. The goddess Juno is Hera's Roman equivalent, with Jupiter as her husband. There's no need to restate all of the mythology, so we'll move right into Roman marriages. We'll start with a quote from a Roman juror who lived around 250 CE. This line is taken from his contributions to the digest portion of the Corpus Juris Civilis, or Body of Civil Law. According to this definition, marriage is a joining together of a man and a woman and a partnership for life in all areas of life, a sharing in divine and human law. A nice definition, but despite being in this text relating to the law, it's not a legal definition. More of an idealized definition that people might aspire to in marriage, but not of legal obligation. That was true before, during, and after his time, which is why I bring it up even though he's from a later part of ancient Rome. So what was reality? For one, we again encounter the primary purpose of marriage being to procreate. This was the reason a man took a wife. Here, though, there were no legal formalities that people were required to go through. Effectively, they simply had to decide to form this lasting union as well as a reciprocation in that the man viewed the woman as his wife and the woman viewed the man as her husband, a mindset rather than a legal arrangement. Then they would have ceremonies of both social and sometimes religious significance. In terms of consent to the marriage, both parties did have to consent. If they were still under the control of a paternal figure called patria potestas in Latin, that father had to consent. Two notable differences emerge here. One is that the male could also require his father's consent. The other is that the woman could have a say of her own. In fact, it's possible she would be able to make the decision entirely on her own if she was no longer under the patria potestas. So that's something new here. I should make clear though, this wasn't the original version of marriage in Rome, nor was it the version that would persist. It did initially follow those ideas of the woman being transferred to her husband, thus always remaining under the authority of a male. This was called manus marriage in Rome, but by the time of Julius Caesar was replaced with what is called free marriage. And though the woman had a say, she was always under a man's authority, but in this free marriage, that man was not her husband. She was under her father's authority, but not the same daily scrutiny. So the need for consent was there, but so too was a degree of independence. This was unchanged if the woman's father died. She still remained independent and the husband did not gain authority over her. A very new idea compared to Mesopotamia or Greece. In terms of who married, Typically, they were people of equal or nearly equal status. Unlike in Athens, a citizen could marry someone who was not a citizen, but still held Latin rights, which were granted under Roman law. In terms of age, while marriage wasn't defined by consummation, but rather consent, both parties had to be capable of it in order to have a marriage. The minimum age was thus set low shockingly low based on what we know. For girls, it was 12. 
for boys, it's not as clear, but it was either set at 14 or the onset of puberty. I'm not sure about the distinction unless they could get married before 14 if puberty set in earlier. That's very young, and I want to go a bit off topic here. For the Romans, life expectancy was in many ways based on passing certain ages. You may have heard that the ancient Greeks and Romans had a life expectancy of about 25 to 30 years old. That's statistically accurate in terms of an average, but also think of this. If a person has two children, one dies on or before their first birthday, while the other lives to be 90 years old, then the average life expectancy would be 45. It's a bit of a misleading statistic. The trouble here is that low life expectancy average includes infant mortality. This was very high based on what evidence we have. As many as 30% may have died in their first year of life, and as many as 50% may have died before the age of 5. Taking out that number, Romans who could survive through infancy and into their mid-teens could have expected to live into their 60s. Of course, that itself is an average. Some still died younger, while others lived longer. Still though, that infant mortality is a pretty significant number, and it would have necessitated a high birth rate to keep up. Going back to that life expectancy that includes the infant mortality, each woman would have needed to give birth to between four and six children just to maintain the needed replacement levels, and accounting for issues like divorce, becoming a widow, and sterility, the number jumps to a range of six to nine. These are very high numbers for women to manage, and with the expectation that half of those children would die. So that, along with other concerns involved in marriage, helps explain why they were looking to get married young. Now in reality, it seems that more often girls reach their mid-teens before marrying, and variations occurred based on things like social class. And males were older, early 20s or so, still young, especially the girls who by our definitions were underage, yet it was a response to the fact that if they didn't at least maintain the replacement rate, the population would shrink, so they needed to start as young as they could. And that's the age issue and why they viewed it as they did. Of course, it's a complicated thing to assess with limited records to go by, but that's what historians have been able to determine. There were other restrictions as well. Relatives by blood, marriage, or adoption weren't allowed to marry, though this may have been allowed if a relative was separated by enough degrees. There's the issue of rank, and I have another point relating to that in a moment. Issues relating to a person's morality were actually also taken into consideration, and that's also another point that I'm going to make in this next part. At the end of the Republic, when Augustus came to power and the Roman Empire emerged, he instituted a variety of laws. Among those were laws pertaining to marriage. He saw that marriage was becoming less frequent, as was remarriage. As a result of this, the birth rate was falling, which goes back to that demography we looked at where they needed a lot of births just to keep up, let alone to grow. He knew change was necessary and wanted to push back towards what was seen as more 
traditional, and moral practices. One such law covered the issue of rank in society. In particular, he took aim at the wealthier classes. He outright prohibited senators from marrying their immediate descendants or freed slaves. These wealthier classes had been more problematic in terms of having, or rather, not having, children. Any such existing marriages to women of lower rank were declared void and their children illegitimate, unable to inherit property from their wealthy class fathers. So it was a retroactive law as well. In general, no one could marry someone over which they had authority. So provincial officials, for example, could not marry women in their province for the duration of their time as an official. Soldiers below a certain rank were also forbidden to marry at all, likely to avoid any undue influence that a woman could have. Remember, war was big in Rome. Even in the Pax Romana, they still had small battles here and there, so it was important to have good, dedicated soldiers. In terms of morality, Augustus banned the marriage of a freeborn citizen and anyone in what was considered a disreputable occupation. Additionally, a freeborn citizen was not allowed to marry a woman who had been convicted of adultery. This may have been tracked through a form of documentation introduced by Augustus in which a husband needed evidence to prove he divorced an adulteress. In most cases of divorce, children would remain with their father, certainly in the case of an adulteress who was now considered to be a very immoral person no longer allowed to marry. In his laws, Augustus also made the traditional duties to family and state more formalized with the enforcement to back it up. All men between 25 and 60 were required to marry, as well as all women between 20 and 50. In these marriages, they were required to have children or else be taxed in proportion to their wealth. And this is how he really got to those senators. Being taxed in proportion to their wealth meant they had the most to lose, and they weren't about to let that wealth go if they could avoid it. As part of the retroactive aspect, freeborn citizens who had produced three children and freed persons who had produced four were exempt from this part of the law. After all, they had already done their part. Of course, many of these laws were changed, altered, or dismantled entirely in later years. There were many people who just didn't like them. This was especially true when Constantine came along and brought many new changes to the Roman Empire, as well as those who came after him. The emergence of Christianity had brought a whole new set of rules for marriage. But we're not going to go into all that today. The emergence of Christianity and its impact on the Roman Empire is much too complicated to cover in one episode, let alone in addition to what we've already talked about. So we looked at marriage in Mesopotamia, marriage in Greece, marriage in Rome. And we've seen that in all of them, procreation was the main reason for marriage. And love just had nothing to do with it. And not until Rome did the woman have any kind of say at all. So next week, we're going to take a look at some other areas and see what else we can find. I'm going to look for some examples of marriage that are more distinct from these, but also more distinct from our own as well. 
and I hope you'll tune in to see how that goes. Until then, take care.